Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. My name's Olivia, and on this podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry. So if you are a fan of the industry, a part of the industry, or aspiring to be a part of the industry, this is the podcast for you. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Deco Dawson. He is a writer and a director, and in this episode, we are talking about his upcoming debut feature film, Diaspora. So in this episode, we talk about the behind the scenes of how this movie got made, and he really goes in depth on his process of crafting the story and his inspiration for how it all came together and really discusses why he made certain choices in in the filmmaking process. He also talks about how to find producing partners. So if you're a writer and director and you wanna know how to get out into the community and, and find people that you can partner with to make your vision come alive, he gives some really good insight and, and tips for how to do that. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Deco. So let's first start uh, talking about exactly what this movie is about. For those people who have not yet seen it, who are going to want to see it, can you give us kind of like the quick pitch? Uh, Well, Diaspora is a movie unlike any other, just stylistically, artistically, for sure. But it has so many thematic issues, cultural issues, psychological, emotional, you know, uh, topics that it touches on. It's at, at the core of it is a young Ukrainian woman who moves from Ukraine to Winnipeg's uh, Selkirk Avenue, uh, which has been the home to immigrants for 135 years. And, you know, it, it is very much an inner city neighborhood. It is the, you know, inner city neighborhood of, of Winnipeg. And uh, it's where a lot of immigrants need to settle in when they first arrive. Uh, and here she comes with just a wad full of cash. And we watch her in this very intimate POV. We see her do you know, the most exciting things in her stay and, you know, the least interesting things in her stay. And somehow the realities of all that, you know, mesh together into a, a you know, a kind of in-depth portrait of, of the, the loneliness and isolation that, you know, a new immigrant may feel when not having that connection to their own, you know, cultural histories that are apparent in Winnipeg, uh, but she just, she just can't find and, and connect to. I think that loneliness was the word that really uh, encapsulated the film for me. Just the, the sense of, I think to the, some extent, we've all had that experience of going to a new place and just feeling like the outsider and feeling, you know, so that their surroundings are so new and unknown. And, and I think that you really captured that reality so well in this film. So Congratulations. So I want to talk about at the very beginning where how you came up with this concept and and what the writing process was like. Way back, the you know, the initial seed of all of this, interestingly enough, is I had been spending a lot of time in Detroit. And this was uh, pre-auto crisis, pre-bankruptcy, pre-mayor going to jail, you know, like... Um, I had just got these like early, early glimpses of this city in decline and was really fascinated about it because it felt like that's the 
the portrait of contemporary America. You know, it was really the signs of this, this place is starting to fall apart, you know? Um, and so I spent, I went probably like 12, 15 times over like a period of years and really filmed and documented the city in, in the decline at that point. And I was like, damn, I just want to live here. There's, it's like, I wish I could, you know, just film every day for, you know, for a year and return to places coming back home, you know, each time I was kind of long to go back again. And there, there was a certain point where the trips became longer in between. And um, I was just spending more time here and kind of feeling like, well, what can I look for that's here, you know, that, that is on my, my back door, my back step. And um, I started to see the city of Winnipeg through my eyes that had been seeing Detroit. Like there's, you have s such a different point of view. And, and, and this is sort of where I'm like leading to is that when you travel to another city, you see it through eyes that have no context. You, you don't miss anything unless you're sort of overwhelmed, right? And when we live in our own cities, you drive past the same corner store f like forever and like you've never been inside and you start to like, you start to forget it actually exists. You, you don't notice it anymore. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time walking that neighborhood and, um, you know, taking photographs. This is before I wanted to do a movie. This is just like very, very early. Um, and just kind of like, okay, this is kind of a version of Detroit in parts that's still occupied, you know? And it was kind of, I really liked at the time, really empty, these empty vistas of this like... Um, city in ruins and in Winnipeg there was there was a life and a vitality there and that was kind of the in into the process for this movie is that I was like okay there's stuff happening here but what am I looking at exactly you know and I know um, we have a very famous main street that like just spans you know three quarters of the whole city and is very interesting from the downtown going north into the north end and um I had slowly been sort of picking away at it and, and photographing. And then, you know, finally I was like, I just have to walk it. And so I walked like the entire thing and did all one side and turned around and walked down the other. And this was probably like a good couple hour walk, maybe three hours, something like that. And stopping and going into like all the places that you drive by all the time. Right. So as you can tell, it was like just the way the city is depicted in, in, the movie i have a very intimate relationship with it it's not like location hunting it was actually like what is the story that is being told out of these buildings and as i kept going along you know i like to say that this movie is my autobiography but i like i've been to all the places that eva walks around like this wasn't i'm looking for a place i've written a script and i'm looking for a place that will work for this scene I, it was like wow that vacuum shop is real the deli shop is real and you know and it was like how am I going to weave all these things together and I ended up kind of like when I go into the writing process after this uh, I had met so many people in the neighborhood I had met so many immigrants in the neighborhood I had talked about you know the the deli shop owners had talked about the decline in their own customers and I'm like wow well like it must be hard to you know make ends meet and they're like no they just drive from all the other parts of the city now
And it was a very interesting reveal that because the demographic had moved away, that part of the city wasn't empty. A new immigrant demographic had moved in, which is then why the movie has is in 25 different languages, because this could be the story of any one of these, these people, right? I just happened to choose Eva being Ukrainian, being Ukrainian myself. I was raised on the south side of the city, and all of the friends, my Ukrainian friends, were on the north side of the city. And I didn't have the same relationship with these North End establishment, Ukrainian establishments that they did. And so it was kind of me searching in a way too, you know, uh, and, and my sister who's older than I am, she grew up going to Sadochik and learning Ukrainian and uh, it has a stronger presence in her life. And, you know, eight years later, I was kind of, you know, this afterthought being like, well, I, it's maybe not that important anymore, a very Anglo, you know, society. Uh, and when you take that away from, you know, it's not that it was taken away from me, but it was kind of like missing in a way that now the journey of actually um, seeking this connection to my own Ukrainian culture has found itself in, in diaspora. There was a sense, you know, anyone who's from Winnipeg or knows Winnipeg while watching the film will know that it feels like a love letter to the city. Like it, you, it feels something very authentic. Like you said, that it wasn't you were scouting for locations. The locations sort of came to you in a way. And that was also exemplified by the fact that I I heard that you actually didn't uh, um, decorate any of the sets. The sets or the locations were as as is. And you didn't actually change things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it, but you felt that when you're watching it. And the, although it's, you know, a fictional feature film, there was something that felt like it actually could be a documentary. Absolutely. I, you know, I wanted to, and the way that it's shot, the way that we follow Eva, you know, I really wanted this kind of fly on the wall documentary approach because of how authentic the city is here, you know, and we worked seven, eight months on the sound design for the movie, which um, interestingly enough, I had sound designers that were in Toronto and so the movie came back and it sounded like the streets of Toronto, uh, which are busy, you know, and and constant. And Winnipeg, especially in this neighborhood, it's, it's a lot more infrequent. You actually notice things coming by. It's not a drowning out, but there's all you can like you can decipher little bits of stories that are happening around you and cars that pass or like music that's pumping out of one house or another. You don't hear those in the larger city. You kind of do, but it's a cacophony of all everything at once. Um, and so I went back on the road, you know, I went back on the streets and re-recorded audio in the actual spots where we filmed, even though we weren't, we were past filming at that time. And so it was like, it's a, that's a very important you know, analogy to what it was to keep these places untouched, right? It was, you know, you walk into these and you go, the whole story's here. You just have to figure out what's being told to you inside this, you know, this establishment, right? Inside the roller rink, you know, for example, or yeah, inside the vacuum store or the factory, the garment factory, like, you know, that was really the seed for, what became diaspora the story is that I had um, worked on a friend's 
piece, um, she had done a profile of, of that factory because her, her uncle and her cousin like own it and run it. And I saw this imagery and I was like, wow, look at the, like the vast diversity on the floor and how real and authentic this location is and looks and sounds. I was like, what if someone didn't belong and visually you could tell in this wide frame that they didn't belong here. And that became the start of the whole thing. What if the character is just someone who doesn't belong, you know, and it was going to that factory. Um, but, you know, none of these places are pretending to be a different place. You know, there's the exception of one location, which, uh, which is Ukrainian voice uh, at the end of the, of the movie had, when I wrote the script was there by the time we went to film it, just like a year and a half later, it was gone. It had packed up, closed up and luckily in the pawn shop next door had taken it over. And luckily uh, they had put everything that was in there in, in storage units and they had distributed as, as book publishers had distributed all of their books to all of the churches and museums in the area and being like, we, we haven't, we can't do anything with this. Uh, and we went back and tracked all those boxes down and brought them all back to Ukrainian voice and rebuilt that set based on photographs I had taken of what it looked like when it was still there. So the pawn shop agreed, they emptied out all of their stuff out of there. So there was a fabrication of a scene that was to recreate the exact look of the exact location at the exact time that it was when it was serving its purpose in the script. And interestingly enough, that scene I feel is like, Oh, Eve has found a home, but what is it? Who cares? Is any, is this place ever going to be around? It already looks like it died in the seventies. Like how long is she going to hold on to this place? Right. And sure enough, like, you know, truth was stranger than fiction and it, it had already done what I predicted was going to happen mm. uh, and why I wanted it as this sort of seminal scene in the movie. So, you know, when you're really in touch with the stories that are being told to you, you just have to listen. You know, you have to be able to read your city in this case, read the transformations that it has experienced over this 130 years and be like, wow, what do we do with this? How can we make, a film, a portrait, um, and and make it mean something, not just to people who who watch it as, as Winnipeggers, but that can relate to it by seeing their own city experience very similar things. Yeah, definitely. Such an interesting story within a story there. Okay, so I want to talk about you've got the script together, you've got the concept. What's your next step in in getting this made? You know, what I, what I had done in the writing process, so just just uh, precursor that, is I had taken all of the places and all the stories that I had heard that people had told me, and I wrote them on little recipe cards. And so it was just like, you know, roller rink was one, you know, and it was like, you know, different service in the church, you know, was another. And, and I had a big stack and then uh, just laid them all on the floor and would be like writing and look over and be like, which one happens next? 
you just pick it up and be like, it'll happen in here. And what is the story being told there and how can it go? Uh, so with that came a finished script that was also then full of page left was the script and page right were the actual existing images that I had photographed. So when you read the script, you're reading the movie. It's like there's storyboards for you, but they're already framed in the way that just, just didn't have Eva in any of it. Right. So you read what's happening. And I had taken it to uh, my producers here, Kyle and Rebecca and uh, Hannah. And, and I had all these images, this idea at the time, uh, it was actually just a, a pitch sort of still at the time. And Kyle saw it and he goes, you know, I love Winnipeg so much. I hear this story, even though it's not even written. You're showing me these images. I can just see this movie. And so just go write it. Like, let's, let's go. Right. And so, um, so I wrote it and came back and, and he just said, this is exactly what you told me you were going to write. Like, let's, let's apply for it. Like, I, I don't, you know, and it was interesting also the, you know, some of the conversations were, okay, so should we like approach Mila Kunis? Like, you know, she's Ukrainian, she's Ukrainian speaking, like, this is great. And this, this thing of like, ah, it really only works if you've never heard of this person before you come with, like, you think you're just watching her in her life. You have no pre-associations. And in fact, with the city itself, like, I don't really want people to have a relationship with the city. It is like, it's not a fabricated Winnipeg, but it is very hand selected to avoid the parts that aren't part of the story. But of course, you know, the bold reveal being, you know, initially and ultimately at some point, you know, the movie was written and directed to be presented without any subtitles. There's so many things about the movie that are like, um, unconventional in the first place they sort of made a decision to be like i understand everything that she's saying so if other people could at least understand what i'm understanding it actually adds another level like she's a lot feistier saltier character when you really know what she's saying uh and i think you actually like you really fall in love with her in, in, in a very different way right and it really helps with her arc it was like this script that had these images and was in all these languages and was full of improvisation uh, around, you know, certain scenes and like, how do we connect when we don't understand the same dialogue? And some people say, you can't, you can't do that. And then of course, you know, we did some rehearsals and like stood behind it. And sure enough, like you could, it was this really interesting pitch that I'm like, so, so, so appreciative of Eagle Vision for jumping on and saying like, Hey, we want to, we want to show stories of people whose stories don't get told. And this fits right uh, up our alley. Mm, that was, you know, I'm so glad they brought that up because it was one of my favorite choices that you made that we got to know what she was saying at all times, but we had no idea what anybody else was saying, unless, you know, you speak one of the, <laughs> one of the languages that comes up. But, and I, I liked it because I felt that, so you know, so often in, in filmmaking, we have this dynamic where we know more than everybody else, right? And, and it's, there's this awkwardness about, how we're gazing into somebody's life or there's a disconnect. And so I liked that the fact that we didn't necessarily know what everybody else was saying gave us a level of empathy for your lead. 
and her, her own struggle and her own journey that we don't typically get as audience members or is not a given as an audience member. It's so unconventional in so many ways. Like uh, Yulia, Eva is in every shot of the movie except for two, like three second shots. And I don't know that I've ever seen a movie where even just the location framing, like when you show the outside of the cafeteria and then the characters inside it, but that you would actually have the character outside of all of these places to set where it is. And, and that was intentional to, to show the scale of how small someone could be in such a, a vast, like lost in a city. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely like to have the intimacy of the audio, have the intimacy of the camera, just observing all the time. And then only being able to comprehend her side of the story just made everything seem so much more, you know, pardon the pun, but for it, you really felt, that the simple struggles, you know, we take for granted. They're, they're not really struggles. But something just so simple, like I saw an ad in your window, y- you must be offering a job here, right? It, and being like, oh, I get it. it. It makes, oh, right. No, you would have been able to in one second, someone say, no, 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 that's, they just posted that here, you know? Those type of things, they take on a lot more weight when when you can see someone who is trying to navigate this, this world that we live in, right? And just put yourself in her position or any other positions and just try and um, anticipate how hard it must be and exhausting to do the most common banal things and just never make that, you know, connection or make that easy for you. Mm. So I want to go back to something that you said previously about, you know, how you got this, this film made and you kind of alluded to your producing partners. And I'm so curious. And I think that it's a struggle that many, you know, new or young writers have who are not yet established that how do you find those people and, and how do you know that they're your partners and, and develop a relationship with them? Well, it's an interesting story. I mean, I, I've, been in the same position as everyone out there and still am all the time, right? I started making shorts like a while back and, and had a very prolific shorts career and, and uh, lots of awards. And I thought it's time to f- focus on features. And uh, these shorts are really eating up a lot of the time, you know, that you would spend because they were getting more and more complicated. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, got to go into some scripts. And so I had approached a producer that I knew from Toronto and, and, and she was like, I love this idea. It was a different project. And so let's go, let's go down to the development road. And, and we did. And then it, it kept, you know, hitting roadblocks installing. And then I was like, I can't, I can't put all my eggs in one basket. I need to write something else. And then I thought, you know, maybe something simpler, something local, something very, you know, it's not a period piece. And then, so I wrote this one and I, but I didn't, you know, have anyone attend, like I wouldn't have a Toronto producer produce this Winnipeg film. Just the infrastructure alone isn't going to work. 
But interestingly enough, I, Kyle had uh, an Eagle Vision had been presenting Lovesick uh, at the concert hall in Winnipeg, and I hadn't seen it yet. And I had this idea like in my head for this movie, and I and they were up on stage, uh, Tyson, the director, and uh, and Kyle, and uh, had said, "Well, this is this is my love letter to Winnipeg, and it's not the kind of love letter you might expect." And I thought, "Oh no, they did it." they beat me to it. Like, you know, this really disenfranchised frailing a part of Winnipeg is now, this is what I'm going to watch. And instead it was actually like the most beautiful parts of Winnipeg. And what they meant is like, you don't realize how beautiful Winnipeg is. So just that night I was like, I got to talk to these guys. And I just went up and uh, Kyle's been around as long as I have, you know, we started sort of the same time and just never connected, never really met. And I said, Hey, like, you know, it was a great screening. You know, I loved the movie. I loved your love letter to Winnipeg. Um, let's, let's just like have a chat. And, and I think it was about four or five, six months later or something like that. You know, I was like, I got to go get the rest of these photos. I got to have something to show, you know? And that was like, that was the start of the whole thing. So I didn't know them, you know, I had never worked with this company before and I knew that they're the, the largest indigenous owned production company in Canada. And I was like, I don't know if this is going to fit in, you know, into what they do, but it wasn't, it was about underrepresented voices you know, and, and it was like, no, this does fit in. So, you know, luck, part of it, the fact that, that, that Eagle Vision was willing to listen because they knew my track record as a filmmaker and my reputation. Uh, they also knew because of all of that, that they were, were going to support me in this project opposed to kind of railroad it and take it away. It was almost like it's already so unconventional making it more conventional does not going to make it better, but realizing all of its full potential is what's going to, you know, going to, going to become something unique and, and original. And, uh, you know, again, I have to thank them for all of that support that really you don't get. There's a lot of meddling that goes on in, in, uh, in the industry because everyone has to, you know, satisfy so many, so many requirements that are outside of your own, grand wishes right so how do you find like you know i if anything I, I hope that this just kind of shows that perseverance and luck like i already had a producer lined up on something else and but it was like i was starting over again you know and i have other projects and i need to find the right partners for those ones too and i don't have any answers <laughs> you know so how does it get made right Ugh. You know, I guess it's it's like a, a big, large chunk of magic. So I want to talk about your journey from short film to feature film and, you know, what that process looked like for you and some of the challenges that you you might have faced going into a feature film. Yeah, like all of them, <laughs> you know, um, I have presently four Diaspora being one of them, but four feature films, all fully written, fully developed, fully ready to go to camera, but only because I had to move on from one to another because it was stalling. And then 
into another and like so many irons in the fire that I actually lost like ironically, but pandemic adds years into it, the occasion, but I actually lost like 10 years. It's been 10 years of when I made that decision to be like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to switch. I already have this fully fleshed idea that I just need to put, you know, pen to paper uh, into then writing, developing. I've done so many um developmental workshops on different projects so much of these kind of photo shooting archiving locations that 10 years later I have one that's ready to go and what really happens and and this has been really the the most uh difficult part of the whole process is I've I've just disappeared completely for 10 years so having a very substantial career that had had has had great momentum has ended up being a big 10 year gap that it's not that I wasn't working in that period. I was, I've done a lot of great stuff. I work in theater uh, quite a bit, or I should say I did until I was like, this is taking up too much time, you know, uh, many music videos and so much writing. I can't believe this is a debut feature like 20 years after, you know, my first TIFF win even like how does that happen right uh and in the first 10 I wasn't ready I I was just like uh you know I'm a a very intuitive kind of filmmaker but I like to know all the parts of the filmmaking process uh I've shot all of my own shorts I've art directed all of my own you know shorts uh done all the post-production on all of them the vfx you know produced all of them and fundraised all of that stuff and i was like on features i don't want to that 10-year gap happens to be a lot of like me not being in complete control of all of those elements of bringing it forward but allowed me to develop more things so maybe over 10 years i could have got one movie made myself but have had nothing else ready to go it's been a very long hard road and and you really lose um that momentum in in those 10 years right and so i'm finding it's very difficult to to put diaspora out there because it's it's you know it's a debut feature uh it's long awaited uh it is unconventional in many ways and it's almost a 10 to 20 year investment it's a very unusual place to be in. Whereas I think if things just kind of roll, you kind of, you don't even have time to make sure it's exactly what you want it to be. You're like, yeah, for as everything I know right now in this moment, this is what I'm putting out there. Uh, but when you really want to make it, you know, you kind of have to look at it. Hey, this might be the only opportunity I ever get to make one. Are you just going to be happy with the one that, you know, you never were really that happy with or just, make sure it's exactly what you wanted it to be to, to, you know, strains of thought, man, you should have had four out by now. doesn't matter if they're good or they're bad, just, you know, put them out and just ride that. And uh, I don't disagree with that. Uh, at the same time, if you only get the chance to do one, I guess this is the one I'd want it to be instead of that very first one that would have been rushed, you know, many moons ago. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's in careers in filmmaking are certainly not linear. It, that's what they're not. <laughs> there are a great deal many other things, but but there's no, not a path that you can ever follow and say that that's how I'm going to get where I'm going. So I want to talk about your style as a director. 
And I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned that you have uh, so much involvement as an art director as well. And I'm kind of wondering how that informs your style as director and and how you would characterize it generally. There are more than one type of film out there. And there's more than one type of film as a filmmaker you may want to make. And I find uh, that 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 is exactly my situation. And so I made uh, a whole bunch of early shorts, really early, early shorts that were stylized, highly stylized, uh, black and white, you know, archival looking movies. And then I moved into this burst of color, which was just like full of sound. There were so many movies that were like a, like a, a nine minute drum solo film, like all in one take, just like, completely different than the rapid cutting I'd been doing in this really old archaic looking, these old archaic looking movies that were heavily art directed. And I really do go back and forth. Like uh, right now I'm, I'm building a giant, the most, the most ambitious thing I've ever done. A like a Ukrainian folktale film with seven and a half foot tall puppet characters that are like actor worn costumes in a fabricated forest land using a whole bunch of different miniatures and, you know, which is the opposite of diaspora and diaspora, you know, pays homage to like slow cinema. And I've loved slow cinema forever, forever, but I never thought I would make something like that. The right story came upon, uh, you know, about and all of these locations that exist. I was like, these are art directed already. Like, this is as if you went and said, I want to make this. Like, what usually happens is someone sees something like that in a photo and then hands it to their art director and says, build me this. Right. Well, what if all the things you saw in a photo were the photos you took of the real places and then you strung them together in a very interesting way? I, you know, I think maybe what I'm getting to is like even more than as an art director and I didn't art direct this, right? Like John who did, John Van Winkle, who did an incredible job. This was his first art directing gig, though he had been in the art department for 20 years. I was like, man, like it's ready to go. Like we let's just jump on it. Right. And uh, he was like, hundred percent. Like, uh, let's just, you know, you have such a clear idea of what you want to see on camera. And, uh, and it gave us the ability in many ways to change the schedule. We change the schedule based on the weather, which uh, happens all the time in movies. But this was changed based on where the sun is at the time of day to give that very even, perfectly exposed, bright, sunny exterior and so you'll see some shots that happen it happened at like 7 30 in the morning that are cut side by side by shots that were shot at 4 p.m but the sun depending on the, the geography of the building was on it at the same time i mean these are things that like it's not art directing 100 percent, it's like it's visual and i'm a primarily a visual filmmaker which is why i didn't rely on dialogue so much in this to tell the story but then when you talk about things like daylight on a building whose department does that fall into 
right? And and it was like, we really don't do that in movies at all. It's like, this location's close to this one. We're going to do them back to back. And it's like, no, but this shot is going to cut with this shot visually. So they have to look like they're side by side or they have to look like they're in the same time of day uh, in, in order to work. And like, you know what I mean? It, it, the movie really uh, blew open all of the conventions of, of how to make a movie, especially in an industry model. Uh, and then it shows it on screen. It's like very unique in like indescribable ways. All of these subtleties, like who's going to think that, wait a second. Yeah. How come the sun is always hot on every single building? All like, is all of Winnipeg face South? Like <laughs> the entire, you know what I mean? <laughs> But if you want that aesthetic, that visual aesthetic, it's not, you know, it's not art directed. It's all of it together. If you could know anything about the industry, say when you were just starting out, uh, that you know now, what would you kind of say to your past self? You know, I would, I can only answer it in this moment right now, uh, which I probably would have had different responses to it every, like, two years, if you had asked me, I would say that right now, you know, my response would be, although you're, you hear it and you've been told how heavily driven the commercial industry is by the sort of entertainment quota, by the a sort of lowest common denominator drives so much, uh, of this industry in terms of like, will it sell what, who's going to watch it? How many of those who's are going to watch it? And is it, does it, you know, check off any of these categories? I'm actually surprised. I always thought there was like a lot more like diversity and room in this industry for it. But I've learned that over the course of decades and decades, it's become so commodified the things that we love on the Criterion channel, the things that we love at like incredible film festivals, it's, it has really started to impregnate those things as well. Uh, Criterion, like not so much, but you know, even festivals where it's like, who's pushing this? What's the advertising behind it? What's who's showing up to represent it. We have eight slots for all of this seven are confirmed before any, you know, like that whole side of it uh, has become for me, just in my experience over the last 20 years, a lot more disheartening, right? Uh, It's a lot more eyeballs and dollar signs, which it always has been, but I would tell myself this, Hey, be prepared. Like really find those people that have an affinity for what you're doing uh, and recognize that you've gravitated towards each other, not, not by coincidence, but there's a whole other thing that like, just don't expect that that's going to speak to you, you know, and, and really start to foster this, you know, this, this niche uh, and, and find the support in there. So the question I ask all of my guests is, can you recommend a piece of Canadian content that you love? I would have to say, um, you know, there was, there is, was, you know, a filmmaker, John Pays, who came through, you know, was in making films in Winnipeg at the start of the Winnipeg Film Group and was essentially the godfather to like 
all Winnipeg filmmakers who fell, you know, in his shadows after. And John Pays made remarkable movies with uh, so little. Uh, he made a feature film, Crime Wave, which was like phenomenal and so strange. And it like, it would like the kids in the hall like fell in love with like before they knew before they were kids in the hall, the Coen brothers as well. And I can't remember, just like had this like real impact on a lot of people and he never knew it. And he made a film called top of the food chain uh, after taking a hiatus for a number of years. And he came out with this movie and it kind of like just got dropped flat and honest God, it's like the funniest Canadian movie I've ever seen. And there's like not a single joke in it. It's all played so straight. And it just showed like he kind of changed directions. He was he was the director in residency at the Canadian Film Center for many years. So very happily, so many people got to live John's like uh, under John's guidance. And uh, a lot of those CFC grads, you know, will say, oh, my God, John is like like the man like and everyone's always like cheering him on to try and create some more stuff but you know I, I always like to go a little bit more obscure um that ties in with winnipeg very nicely uh i would say that like john pays shorts uh p-a-i-z-s and uh his feature crime wave his feature top of the food chain unbelievable like i could return to those like all the time and and it's you know, especially if you like those filmmakers that I said were, uh, you know, influenced by him and appreciate him, you'll, you know, you'll love it. Amazing. So for those people who've been listening, who are really excited about the film, do you have any idea where people are going to be able to watch it in the forthcoming kind of months? Uh, well, we've got the world premiere is happening at the Festival Nouveau Cinema in Montreal on Saturday. Oh my goodness. Festival Nouveau Cinema's phenomenal festival. They have shown more of my films at that festival than, than any other place in the world. Um, they've really been a huge, huge support to me in my filmmaking career. Uh, and I must admit the best films I've ever seen in my life have been at that festival. So again, you kind of find that affinity that's, you know, uh, that group, and you make sure you run with it. And it's playing there then again on Monday. After that, I mean, there hasn't been the announcements for subsequent festivals. So we have to, of course, honor that. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially the film will do like festivals for a year as it okay. kind of usually does. And then we'll trickle out, trickle out into other, you know, maybe not a full year, but you kind of give, you don't, hit the next round of festivals until their next year starts, right? Uh, trying to build word of mouth and traction, you know, through the festivals. Uh, and then we'll, of course, have like pocket screenings like all over the country for sure. Uh, because it fits in with so many different groups, with the Ukrainian groups, uh, with film, you know, cinephile groups, with the cooperatives across the city, uh, the, the country, like, the Cinematex, for example, you know, so I think there's a lot of going to be a lot of interesting avenues and then hopefully we'll be able to do a release and, and get people seeing it in no matter where they are. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This was such a delight. Thank you so much, Olivia. Really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure talking today. And uh, I, I, thank you so much for, for having me on and, and your chance to talk about Diaspora. Appreciate that.